Welcome everybody in the room and those uh, watching remotely. I, it is my pleasure to introduce uh, one of the, our leaders of the Cancer Center, Dr. Chris Amos, who will be speaking at this grand round. But first, I'd like to get some business out of the way. Dr. Amos does not have any financial interest. He reports that he does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational use of products or devices. And he attests that he's not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. Uh, Chris um, um, was at the um, NCI, a uh, fellow at the NCI in NIAMS. Uh, so he is both an expert in cancer and autoimmune disease and musculoskeletal diseases. Um, he uh, joined the ranks of the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in 1993 as an associate professor in the Department of Epidemiology. He quickly rose through the ranks there, uh, where he was named the Asheville Smith Endowed Professor and the Ann Laurie Howard Distinguished Professor. Um, then he joined the Department of Genetics at MD Anderson um, in 2011, and we were very lucky in 2012 that uh, he decided to join Dartmouth and Geisel uh, as a professor of community and family medicine. Uh, he has several leadership roles at both uh, Geisel and um, the Cancer Center. He is a professor and chair of the brand new Department of Biomedical Data Science. Uh, he's the Associate Director of Population Sciences at the Cancer Center, the Interim uh, Deputy Director of the Cancer Center. And recently, he was uh, we were very excited that he was uh, named to the Board of Scientific Counselors for the NIEHS. Uh, his um, CV, this is uh, double-sided printed, uh, has uh, over 474 publications. So it is my real pleasure to introduce Chris Amos, who will talk on towards personalized approach to early lung cancer. Okay. Thank you, thank, thank you Ollie, for that uh, very gracious and uh, wonderful introduction. I'd say I'm not an expert in cancer and I am, but I do know a lot of experts and I work with lots of very wonderful people. Um, happy Groundhog Day, uh, you know, and I'm kind of surprised we don't have Donald Trump or uh, Hillary in the audience. Um, I'm sure they'll be um, crisscrossing our world. Yeah, sort of like a personalized approach to candidates these days. But um, anyway, so I thought I would uh, give you kind of a, a whirlwind wind tour of uh, what we're doing in personalized um, early um, prevention strategies. Um, and uh, so my, my talk has sort of four parts. The first is uh, an, an, a description of a very effective um, new finding in colon cancer, because that's a very good example. Um, and then some of the work that we've been doing in the genetics of uh, lung cancer and smoking. Um, and then finally, uh, some uh, aspects of biomarker uh, discovery that uh, will uh, propel our ability to detect uh, lung cancer at early stages. So um, I don't have anything to disclose, as Yoli said. Um, so uh, um, this is sort of in the uh, personalized uh, precision medicine domain. and. Um, you know, the first question is, why do we have a term like this? Um, clinical practice uh, uh, strives to match patient characteristics to proposed treatments, um, and it's always done that. Um, the reason for sort of coining these new words is uh, uh, enormous discoveries that we've made, um, technological breakthroughs in genomics, and 
uh, more generally high-throughput profiling, uh, so um, RNA sequencing is a coming and a very prominent uh, new approach, and then there's epigenetics and many different platforms that allow us to uh, perform very large-scale analyses of samples and um, provide new discoveries. And through those, we would like to be able to profile very completely the attributes of um, an individual predisposing for cancer development and, and also the cancers themselves to, to target therapy more effectively. So uh, we have made some stunning improvements. Um, there's a lot of hype, um, so we sort of have to dissect the hype from the actual delivery, but um, certainly we're making quite a lot of progress. So I, um, this is a nice sort of cartoon of the way that um, one can think about cancer as sort of a branching tree. And um, typically there are some early uh, mutations or possibly inherited mutations that propel the development of a cancer. And um, if they're inherited, then those uh, variants are present in all the cells of an individual as well as the tumor and may um, define some characteristics of the tumor that will allow it to become um, more susceptible or respond better to treatment. But if they're inherited, they will also affect the individual. So uh, there needs to be some care uh, paid to the um, individual characteristics of the, um, the person as well as the tumor. Um, so as you get further out in, in the tree, um, there may be more difficulty in treating because each of the clones have different characteristics, and so that raises some challenges in treatment. Um, I thought I would uh, first give you this great example that comes from the colon cancer world. So uh, colon cancer is a very useful um, cancer to study because we can gain access to the um, to the uh, pre-malignant phases as well as the early stages of carcinogenesis. And we know that there are multiple steps that occur during uh, the development, some of which are inherited. So some individuals have mutations in um, APC that uh, cause them to generate lots and lots of polyps. Others have mutations in DNA mismatch repair, and that causes them to generate lots of mutations in their tumors. Um, the TCGA published a, a paper um, in, um, I think it's 2012 or so, um, looking at the characteristics of uh, tumors and finding that there's a group of tumors that are hypermutated, uh, and these have um, arise in individuals with inherited mutations of DNA mismatch repair genes or some individuals who have methylation of um, the same genes and so generate lots and lots of mutations. And um, so it turns out that those individuals um, seem to be very responsive to immunotherapy. So this was a, a paper published uh, recently, uh, this uh, 2015, um, looking at uh, Pembro, uh, pembrolizumab, which is a, an um, immuno, immunotherapy, and so only those uh, patients that are, it's a, it's a checkpoint inhibitor, only those people that um, have mismatch repair defects in their tumor or in their germline were, were responsive to this therapy. So it's a kind of an interesting example of the intersection of um, inherited uh, variation as well as response to treatment. Um, so now I, I'm going to switch for the rest of the talk to lung cancer. So 
Um, the reason I'm interested in, in many else other investigators are in lung cancer is it's the leading cause of cancer death in the U.S. Um, there's four times as many deaths uh, from lung cancer as from breast cancer, and it receives only about a quarter of the funding. So. Um, unfortunately, it's a very um, unloved uh, disease in the, in the cancer world. And um, uh, so lung cancer results from exposure to tobacco smoke and other environmental carcinogens um, and against the genetic uh, background that influences uh, smoking behaviors and risk of uh, cancer development. Um, early stage lung cancers have a much better prognosis. Um, about 50% five-year mortality um, uh, compared to the later stages. So um, here's a little uh, picture of that. So um, early stage tumors do perform much better. Uh, it would be better if we had um, you know, improved treatments for these early stages as well. But at least if we catch them early, we, we do a better job. So um, we know the NLST showed a 20% reduction in uh, lung cancer-specific mortality. Um, many positive scans were found in the CT screened arm, um, and the uh, sort of approaches for evaluating um, nodules have improved since the NLST, but um, still, if it were implemented as it should be broadly, there would be a huge uh, cost of implementation. So if we could further target those individuals who will benefit the most from screening, um, we would have a higher yield and a lower cost of um, uh, approach. So we do know that environmental causes of lung cancer are very well established. So in the genetic epidemiology world, it's sort of a, a, a wonderful model of a cancer that has a very well-known um, uh, risk factor from smoking. Um, and there are genetic factors as well. So this combination of genetic and environmental um, influences is um, a very useful uh, approach to, to study. So um, this figure is showing you what happens if you uh, quit at a certain point in time. And um, the longer you smoke, the higher your risk be becomes. But um, also, once you quit, your risk doesn't drop back down to zero. It sort of levels off. and parallels um, the risk that you accrued up to that point. So uh, unfortunately, people that were smokers and have quit um, still remain at quite elevated risk of uh, developing lung cancer. The longer they smoke, the higher their risks are. And among ever smokers in the US, um, about half of those people who develop lung cancer are for former smokers. So it, it remains a very um, impressive uh, problem. And um, we are uh, getting better at stopping uh, uh, smoking, but uh, this is a figure from uh, 2015 showing you the prevalence of tobacco uh, use. And you can see that cigarette use has uh, decreased. So this is over uh, four years um, in use. But uh, use of e-cigarettes is actually uh, growing very rapidly. And um, while e-cigarettes themselves are probably not particularly um, harmful for developing lung cancer, the risks are probably um, relatively minor. The problem is that once people become dependent on nicotine, there's a, a concern that they will use other tobacco products. And so we may be seeing 
you know, um, a problem going forward with um, cigarette use continuing to, to um, grow rather than shrink. Um, so that's a concern. Um, also in the rest of the world, uh, tobacco use is continuing to grow, especially in China and India. So there's a real problem um, globally with uh, increasing lung cancer rates. So some of the questions in lung cancer control, um, how do we best minimize uh, risk for lung cancer? Uh, how do genetic and environmental factors jointly influence the cancer risk? Um, can we gain etiological insights beyond just the risk from smoking? Um, and then uh, there are other questions in the epidemiological world. Um, BMI, uh, people who are very thin and uh, smoke are at much higher uh, risk of developing lung cancer. So um, a question arises, is BMI a risk factor, is low BMI a risk factor for lung cancer? Um, telomere length has been uh, something Jen's been interested in um, and uh, trying to characterize its uh, risk for uh, lung cancer and other uh, cancers is of interest in. Um, can we use biomarkers to target individuals? So these are the questions. Um, there are some selected high-risk syndromes uh, re relating to lung cancer risk. So um, small cell um, lung cancer arises in people with retinoblastoma um, mut mutations. Uh, people with P53 mutations, uh, Lee-Fermini syndrome, have a very high risk of uh, getting lung cancer, which increases if they smoke. Um, and then there are some other rare mutations. Uh, this is a figure, uh, part of a pedigree that we had collected with Lee-Fermini syndrome. And you can see several um, uh, lung cancers and head and neck cancers occurring in uh, this part of the pedigree. People with Lee-Fermini syndrome have a very high risk of getting breast cancer. So um, they, they also get sarcomas and many other cancers. But um, lung cancer is quite prominent. And this is a figure uh, showing you the, um, the lifetime risk of developing lung cancer among the family members, which goes up to about 80% by age 60. Um, the non-carriers in the same families were at sort of the, the general risk in the population. So um, we use family studies for uh, rare uh, you know, alleles that greatly increase the risk for discovery of the more common alleles that um, increase risk but not very dramatically, we uh, collect um, individuals with lung cancer and um, individuals without lung cancer, and we compare the alleles in the two groups uh, measured in, uh, usually from lymphocytes in their blood. And um, then we can identify uh, the genes that are playing a role in, in development of, um, of lung cancer. So uh, we've aggregated uh, large collections of individuals to uh, be able to identify these variants that are influencing risk. This was a, uh, from a study, I think, in 2012 or so, uh, where we had about 17,000 lung cancer cases and about 33,000 controls. And, when we perform this analysis, we identify a very significant finding for uh, the alpha-5, um, alpha-3 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor region on chromosome 15. Um, these were, at the time, kind of the black sheep of the nicotinic receptor family because they're expressed at low levels in most of the brain, um, only in parts of the brain that have to do with um, not receiving uh, stimuli that you're expecting, the habenula, um, are there are very high levels of expression. It's also they're also expressed uh, non-neuronally, and they are, they're actually expressed quite highly in lung tissue. Uh, so, um, remaining to be a question still of you know is all of the action 
of these variants through smoking behavior or some of it um, directly in the tissue where um, the, the genes are expressed. Um, so um, along, by the way, to orient, orient you for this figure, this is the chromosomal position, and these are the uh, minus 10 log p values. So you can see that this is like 10 to the minus 60, a very significant result. Um, if we sequence around this, um, this region, we see lots and lots of other variants. Um, there's a very um, relevant uh, variant that affects signal transduction through this um, gene, um, and so that definitely plays a role. There's also another variant that affects the expression levels, and these two alleles um, tend to be uh, negatively correlated, but they do occur in some individuals. And um, if you look at tobacco smoking, um, the most significant region is also on chromosome 15 in the same SNPs. If you look at COPD, you also see a very significant signal in this region. Although uh, there's some um, thought that uh, a nearby gene that has to do with iron metabolism, IREB2, may be um, important, and it may not actually be the nicotinic receptors that are driving COPD as much in the region. Um, so uh, collaboratively, we worked uh, with a group at uh, University of Washington. Um, they find that the, this variant, um, the signal transduction-related variant in the alpha-5 receptor um, affects uh, the time until you're able to quit. So people that are smokers, most smokers would like to quit, um, and typically um, they will go under uh, uh, something like 10 quit attempts before they're actually able to be successful. So um, it's a challenge. Um, and so people that have this variant, um, it, um, it, when they quit, it's usually a little bit later couple of years later, and actually their time to um, lung cancer is uh, about two years earlier, so they, they have trouble uh, with smoking. Um, the group at University of Washington um, did a study to look at the, uh, this variant and the earlier one I mentioned that affects expression levels um, to see what the impact is um, with respect to tobacco cessation. So they um, collected uh, data from individuals who had undergone um, therapy for uh, smoking um, in which they received pharmacological interventions. Um, and so they characterized the individuals by the number of risk uh, variants they had in the haplotypes and found that if you uh, have no adverse haplotypes, um, you're ability to quit was the same whether you had the placebo or the treatment, whereas if you had two of these uh, variants, then you had a 30 percent lower chance of uh, being able to quit. So in other words, you were thir three times higher, more likely to have not succeeded in quitting. So um, indicating a very strong sort of interaction between your ability to quit and the relevance of a pharmacological um, agent. So if you have one of these risk variants, um, then you have much more trouble quitting. And if you don't have one, then you do as well under, under behavioral therapy without pharmacological intervention. As a result of these studies, um, uh, trials are underway to evaluate the um, efficacy of doing genotyping up front and then allocating people to therapy based on their genotypes. So we um, also um, expanded what we were doing. Um, we performed these imputation analyses to try and uh, 
get all possible data out of our samples. We only genotype about 300,000 to maybe uh, up to 2 million markers, but we know of um, at least uh, 18 uh, million that are fairly polymorphic, and so we can infer from um, known reference samples these additional variants. Um, and we tell people what to do, and they never listen to us. So um, in this example, they all uh, use different plat approaches, even though they were told to do them the same way. Um, the good thing about what everyone did is they all use the same uh, population. So because they all use the same population, we could, um, at the end of the day, stitch together all the analyses. Now, having said that, um, in our latest iteration of this work, um, we built these wikis, and we, um, you know, we're much more forceful in telling people that they have to follow the rules. Um, they still probably don't, but anyway. Um, so here's an example of um, some of the results, and you can see that, um, you know, one of the questions going into this is, you know, maybe all lung cancer is the same in terms of its etiology. Um, certainly, uh, treatments overlap a bit between squamous and um, adenocarcinoma. Um, but actually, in terms of etiology, they look almost completely different. Um, there is some overlap um, in the nicotinic receptor region, but outside of that, um, the causal variants look um, like they're, they're unrelated. Um, and you do see BRCA2 and CHECK2 and MSH5, RAD52, all these different genes that relate to recombination repair showing up as uh, most significant in squamous carcinoma. Um, and so uh, BRCA2 variant was quite shocking in a way because this variant um, up until this point in time had not been um, associated reliably with any other, um, with, with breast cancer anyway. Um, there was a little bit of literature on um, esophageal cancer, but it was um, in the Pakistani populations, it wasn't very clear. But, um, so this variant is a stop mutation um, near the terminus of the gene, um, and it interrupts the RAD51 binding domain, um, but the relevance to RAD51 is not very clear because there are other RAD51 binding domains. So uh, whether or not it, it acts through that um, function is unknown. Um, CHECK2 variants also involved and quite significant, but protective for lung cancer. It's a risk factor for breast. So um, these two things probably interact, um, and why they interact differently in breast and lung is quite unknown at this point. Um, so this is showing sort of a diagram. Um, we, to exclude the possibility that this variant that we identified in breast cancer might be tagging another variant in uh, BRCA2, we uh, uh, consulted our colleagues in Iceland. The Icelandic people are, are very uh, nice to work with. They will tell you all kinds of data that they've collected because they've, you know, uh, gene they've sequenced a large number of people, and they know how they're all connected. Um, and so if you ask them for something, they will almost always give you information that they can never give you um, anything except a very specific piece of, uh, of data. They, they have lots of rules about what they can do. So anyway, in this case, they were very helpful. Um, they showed us that uh, the variant we found for lung cancer doesn't affect breast cancer. Um, in Iceland, there's a breast cancer variant that's uh, common. Um, it's a founder mutation, and it doesn't affect lung cancer. So um, this is uh, effectively excluding um, other breast cancer variants as 
causing this association with lung cancer and, and pointing the finger very strongly at lung cancer. Subsequent studies have shown that this variant um, influences risk for all smoking-related cancers like head and neck, um, esophageal, um, and I think bladder. So. Um, Anyway, another question is why are some people protected from lung cancer? So um, we've tried to do, uh, you know, aggr by aggregating very large uh, collections of um, individuals, we can start to uh, look at um, among those that are heavy smokers versus those that are light smokers. Um, you know, who, uh, who will develop lung cancer. And um, so we do see one uh, gene, this ubiquitin conjugating enzyme, E2E, showing a very significant effect. Um, these studies take a long time to conduct. Um, I, we've been pursuing this for something like four years. And it's because of the nature of the data. So right up until now, data are collected by groups. Um, they analyze it, and then they'll reluctantly uh, tell you some of the results, but you can't really get all of the data in one place. Um, so we've started this um, initiative called the OncoRay, I'll tell you about in a few minutes, which generates a huge amount of data on the same platform, and um, so that will make all of this stuff easier to finish. But So this, these results are um, noteworthy. They're genome-wide significant, but we are very conservative, and we want to make sure they're reliable before we get them out. So that hasn't been published yet. So um, how can we improve lung cancer detection? That um, The epidemiological models that we currently um, um, have in place uh, provide an accuracy of about 75 to 80 percent. So they're actually pretty good for epidemiological models, and that's because um, smoking is such a strong risk factor. Um, a genetic marker, so uh, David uh, Chen in, in um, our group has uh, recently completed analyses showing about a 4 to 5 percent increased risk, uh, ability to identify uh, uh, lung cancer cases if you pull together all the genetic data that we have. Um, but still, that leaves sort of uh, room for improvement, um, I think, for clinical utility, we'd like to get up to something like 90 percent um, accuracy before so, uh, a, a risk prediction um, algorithm is um, very useful at an individual level. So um, what are some other things we could add? So BMI, um, telomere length, and some biomarkers come into the, um, into the mix. So uh, one of the questions is, uh, is BMI um, an independent risk factor for lung cancer? So. Um, cases of lung cancer often present with a lower BMI than, um, um, than would be expected in the general population. Um, but uh, low BMI could reflect reverse causality. It could be that when people develop lung cancer, they start uh, losing weight. And, you know, they don't, they develop lung cancer and there's a little bit of time before they actually come to attention. So um, that's a concern. Or there could also be confounding, which would be, uh, due to effects from inadequate measure or adjustment for smoking. So we know that smoking is a strong risk factor, but um, people report smoking, and that doesn't completely reflect the um, exposure that they have because they may smoke more heavily or lightly, um, and they also metabolize the um, harmful compounds and, and smoke differently. So, so even though we have measures of smoking, um, they may not be adequate to really assess um, how, how much they're really being exposed. 
Um, there is actually a weekly positive association of high BMI with increased uh, lung cancer risk among non-smokers. So, um, and usually BMI is actually increased BMI is a risk factor for other cancers. So, um, this is consistent with other um, other cancer types. So. Um, um, so this is showing you a, like a meta-analysis, again, looking at BMI and lung cancer risk. So if you just naively look at uh, the relationship between um, body mass index and uh, lung cancer risk, you see that lower um, BMI is a risk factor. Um, and even in prospective studies where uh, reverse causality um, would not be an issue because you're following people prospectively. You get their BMI at a certain point in time, and then you wait until they get lung cancer. Um, so they shouldn't have uh, latent um, lung cancer at the time when you collected the BMI. So um, even in that case, there's, um, there's uh, an association between lower BMI and increased uh, lung cancer risk. So an, a new kind of approach that has become popular is called Mendelian randomization. So the idea here is that you can use the genetic information as an instrumental variable. This is a variable that helps you to uh, partition um, the, the, the risk um, into, diff into those components that are directly uh, related to the, um, to the exposure of interest. So in this diagram, uh, we have a genetic factor um, that's influencing a phenotype, let's say BMI, and, uh, and the genetic factor is not directly affecting the outcome uh, disease. So um, here we have a confounder Z, which is in influencing BMI and the disease, and we, which is measured, and we may have unmeasured confounders that are affecting both of them. So it, we could do an analysis uh, looking at the phenotype versus disease and conditioning on the confounder that we've measured. And if we had knew about all the confounders and we included all of them, then we would get the correct um, association between the phenotype and the disease. But there may be unmeasured confounders or those that we don't know about. So in, in this approach, we can use the genetic information to um, help to remove these confounders and so get a direct um, estimate of the relationship between the phenotype, BMI, and disease. And so we have a couple ways of doing that. If we measure the data all together, then we can analyze this uh, directly. If we don't have all the data in one place, we can use um, the results from an analysis in which we looked at the disease versus the genotypes and another analysis in which we looked at the phenotypes and the outcome. And so we can take advantage of enormous sources of data that we have, which um, include risk factors and diseases. So anyway, that's sort of a long story. So um, applied to BMI, um, what happens is if you look at the sort of meta-analytical observational estimate, uh, you see that um, BMI, low BMI is a risk factor for lung cancer, but when you um, uh, use the genetic information to remove all these confounders, you see that there's no association BMI. And, and in fact, as you aggregate more data, there's um, evidence that high BMI is a risk factor for lung cancer. So um, it seems that you know unmeasured smoking and other confounders are, are driving that relationship, and so BMI is a risk factor. Um, 
Uh, are telomeres a risk factor for lung cancer? Uh, again, the same sort of questions. Uh, we don't know whether, you know, there could be some reverse causality. There could be effects from age that we haven't measured. Um, and um, when you apply this kind of approach uh, to telomere length in lung cancer, you see that actually the observational estimates um, are a little bit lower than the um, sort of genetically corrected ones. So um, in this case, uh, telomere length um, does seem to be re related, and the, um, the, uh, the uh, Mendelian randomization actually sort of improves the relationship. And actually, so th this uh, group in, in Bristol has uh, been um, doing sort of massive studies. So as I mentioned, you can use all the existing data that we have. So we have lots of data on um, associations of different genetic factors with many different diseases, and we have associations um, of genetic factors with telomere length, and we can put all that together and do sort of a sweeping analysis. You see lung cancer in this thing figure is significantly associated, but so are some other cancers. So glioma is very strikingly associated. Um, and um, uh, similarly, some other diseases like uh, celiac disease is uh, protected. Um, some lung diseases are also um, so uh, related to telomere length. In that case, shorter telomere length is a risk factor. Um, and you can also do the same thing to look for other biomarkers. So in this case, um, smoking, um, different biomarkers or um, epidemiological factors that might contribute to lung cancer were studied. Um, so smoking is the most significant one, but um, telomere length comes out to be significant and vitamin B12. There's some newer uh, data on um, some um, polyunsaturated fatty metabolism genes. So. So we've um, developed this oncoarray platform. Um, it includes a lot of uh, these genetic factors for uh, predictors like height, weight, and so we can do this Mendelian randomization in a broad way. And we've successfully genotyped um, uh, 494,000 SNPs on 421,000 people, something like that. So it turns out to 2.09 billion genotypes. So. Um, that's a lot of data. Um, so you can see that this is sort of our preliminary results, and um, you can see now that we're getting lots and lots of new signals. Um, these have yet to be published, and uh, something like March is what we're targeting for this. So now, um, lastly, we'll turn to some biomarker um, data. So um, there have been multiple studies um, in indicating um, uh, convincing risk uh, differences when stratifying for various inflammation biomarkers. You know, the biomarker field, so the reason I like genetics is because the markers are very reliable. It's very uh, easy, to, you know, they're very easy to genotype. The error rates are something like 0.1% per SNP. Um, even when you get to sequencing, the error rates are quite low. Um, for biomarkers, uh, I'm not as enthusiastic about measurement error. It's been, uh, and the other problem in the biomarker field is the samples tend to be very small. And so um, the literature is um, littered with many, many studies that are small and have not been replicated very well. So um, to deal with that uh, need for replication, there is the Early Detection Research Network, which collects samples in a systematic way 
and makes those samples available to investigators broadly. Um, there's also a new consortium called um, the Molecular Characterization of Screen-Detected Lesions. We're at the Coordinating Center. Um, Vermont has one of those. And so they're trying to do a similar thing, but for early uh, cancers. But um, anyway, so in the lung cancer world, um, uh, C-reactive protein has been, um, you know, very convincingly uh, associated with lung cancer risk. Again, the problem there is, is reverse causality uh, going on, um, and, and there is some evidence that's, that on its own that's not um, reliable as, as causally related. It certainly predicts um, IL-6 and IL-8 have been implicated. Um, bilirubin is actually a very interesting um, observation. So there's about a two to three-fold difference in lung cancer incidence among quartiles. Um, I'm going to just show a couple slides. So uh, there was a really nice paper in 2011 where um, uh, there, were, there were cohorts being studied. So this is 504,000 people um, being studied for hepatobiliary or hemolytic diseases. And um, as a part of those studies, they, they collected bilirubin levels, and they also looked at outcomes of many other kinds of diseases, including uh, lung cancer and cardiovascular outcomes. And so if you look at their results, um, it turns out that um, high levels of bilirubin are um, very protective for some diseases, especially COPD and um, lung cancer. Um, and they also high levels pr uh, protect from um, all mortality as well. So you might ask, like, why is that? Um, so bilirubin is an antioxidant. Um, I think if you're exposed to very high levels, that could be quite bad for you. But um, at sort of sort of normative, normative levels, um, it's protective. Now the question is, why has this not been um, replicated broadly? So. Um, you know, this is, this is a striking find, and it would be worth um, doing some more studies. I would expect that, like, even our hospital record has bilirubin levels. So this is something where you could just do a, a, a mining, uh, you know, from our own uh, records to, to evaluate. Um, another uh, biomarker that's been uh, fairly reliable is this prosurfactant protein B. Um, we actually included uh, genetic markers of that in our lung cancer surveys, and um, there is some evidence that even the genetic factors influence um, lung cancer risk. So the, the area under the curve, um, including surfactant B, increases quite a bit when you, um, when you include that as a biomarker. Um, and uh, from, I think, November 2015, there was a paper um, showing that um, this DAS, diacetylspermine levels, are predicting lung cancer risk. So this is a, a study done by Wyckoff and Sam Hanash. He was here not too long ago. Um, uh, they use uh, mass spec uh, to, to sort of scan through all of the um, bio, uh, like serum um, uh, metabolites. And they started with about 100 um, cases from the carrot study and 100 controls. And um, then they found this one metabolite. Um, they went through quite a bit of steps to figure out which one it was, and it turned out to be this DAS. Um, it turns out that including both DAS and surfactant B jointly 
in, improves the uh, prediction. So um, these are interesting biomarkers. Um, again, you know how easy it is to protect to identify DAS and serum is yet to be determined. I think is, is how how easy it is to work with. Um, there are other mar markers. Uh, microRNA panels have been proposed. Um, we, I tried to validate some of this work with a cohort in Leeds, and it, it was. It didn't validate. And I think the problem is that many of these microRNA panels have been done with lots of markers and not that many people. And so um, these have yet to be, I think, reliably reproduced. But they, they probably are useful at some level. Um, and then methylation analysis of germline DNA, that's yet to be really applied uh, broadly. I think we all want to do this, but it's been hard to get grants funded to, to look at germline. So anyway. Um, so uh, this is where we are. We, we have some, um, you know, uh, germline variants are quite uh, predictive, um, and then um, some other variants like uh, um, surfactant B and uh, probably this DAS marker are good. Telomeres are probably helpful. So, um, so we have uh, groups of biomarkers, some that are very strong, um, like the genetic ones, even though on their own they're individually small, aggregated, they can be quite helpful. And we really need to have uh, sort of more comprehensive studies. Um, this is a good time to plug the, the uh, proposal that Carmen and Jennifer uh, proposed, which will collect samples and uh, help us to look you know, forward in this direction. Um, so I want to thank um, people in my group um, over here and um, then collaborators at University of Washington. Um, we have the, uh, all the groups that perform in the genetic studies um, and then some of the NCI staff. Um, so in summary, there's, uh, there are some high-risk mutations and those definitely um, identify individuals for whom um, you know, specific um, observation and more detailed screening is relevant. That the only concern is that RB1 and P53 mutation carriers are um, very radiosensitive. So um, if they were subjected to screening, it would have to be done very carefully to not um, increase their risk. Um, other, there are nicotinic receptors. Um, that play a role, and probably telomere as well, in all lung cancer. But other than that, everything looks totally different between the cancer types. Um, the squamous carcinomas um, are related to uh, recombination repair. Uh, uh, DNA um, adenocarcinomas um, seem to be more sort of um, cell cycle related, I would say. Um, longer telomere length increases lung cancer risk, and BMI also contributes. Um, and genetic information provides insights into the etiology of common cancers um, and has provided some um, useful insights into uh, tobacco as well. And those are being translated into uh, clinical management. So it's kind of nice to see that happening. Um, so where we are now is we really need to have a, a more comprehensive approach to um, integrating data from the genetic world, the bio, uh, biomarkers and um, epidemiological factors to um, best identify people that are at highest risk for developing lung cancer that would benefit from screening. Um, having said that, um, there's a long road to get there because uh, while I think we have discovered quite a, enough uh, features to improve screening, 
Um, how to actually character, how to do that is remains to be determined because um, the genetic markers come from DNA. Um, a lot of these biomarkers come from serum, um, and, and um, you know, so combining data, being able to cost-effectively um, sample that information is uh, going to be a challenge, I think. So, anyway, that's all I wanted to tell you about, and um, I welcome questions. So with the, the squamous related steps, has anybody looked at sort of the, if those are modified by virus kind of things? Like the fact that people are at higher risk after they get past the anemia for um, viral related squamous cancers, like head neck cancers and stuff. And so like, you wonder if that is something, I mean, because it's so squamous specific and viral cancers tend to be squamous specific. Whether like HPV plays a role or something like that. Um, I'm not aware that there's anything reliable. I mean, people, I, you would think people have looked, but I, I don't it's hard think. To have the data. Part of it is well, it wouldn't be that hard because you, you can get um, normal lung from people that have had um, lung cancer. I guess the, quest, the point is that they may have cleared the viral infection. Is that? Um, but, but you can certainly get the tissue. You could look at antibody levels, but, but I, I'm not aware of that. So the relationship between high bilirubin and um, low incidence is really interesting. Um, is the relationship between smoking and bilirubin known? Um, yes. So there, I don't know about smoking as much, um, but bilirubin levels are related to stress and things like so. There, you know, like. SES, stress, things like that. So there, that horsefall uh, paper um, had collected all that information. So um, I don't, I don't remember it being related to smoking. No, might have a slide like that somewhere. I thought I had one. I think I. Sorry. No, can't find one. Anyways. Yes. I had a question on the Billy Rubin also. That's a, that's a curious observation. Uh, were they also uh, levels of iron higher? Uh, were they anemic? It would have to be a chronic condition, I, I would assume, these Billy Rubin levels. Um, I, Billy Rubin can act as a signal transducer and be, it can regulate uh, protein translation. Right. Um, I think these are, I don't, they weren't high, <laughs> they weren't. Like, uh, say, you know, they they weren't clinically ill from bilirubin. These were just normal uh, ranges. I think it's just the level, if it was higher or lower. So, I'm not sure that's answering your question. But they, they didn't pursue. That, I don't, you know, I don't know. Like Gilbert's uh, syndrome. You know, do those people have um, uh, lower risks of cancer? That would be because they, you know, right? That would be a good group to study. I. I think this is an area that should be followed up. It shouldn't be that hard to do. Um, this was a prospective study of 500,000 people. I mean, it's a, a very impressive false positive if, if it's true, you know, if that's what it is. But uh, anyway, it'd be really worth following that up. Yes, Jen. Are there polymorphisms associated with shoe bears that could be? Um, there are definitely variants, yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, especially in some populations, like in um, French Canada, it's, there are certain uh, founder effects that should be following. Yeah, go on. Yes? Is the polymorphism in the nicotinic receptor that you mentioned, CHRNA, also associated with stress or anxiety? I, I have never seen that. Um, it is, so it's the, uh, the signal um, transduction variant, the one that reduces um, signaling, um, is positively associated with smoking and negatively associated with cocaine use. So, but other than that, um, you know, I haven't seen anything about anxiety. Um. Also, that, that um, there may be confounders with um, enzymes that, that um, break down the products in cigarette smoke that may turn them into more toxic or less toxic. Right. Were any of those? You know, that that's that was one of the main shockers in doing these studies is that you know we assumed that we would find um, metabolic genes playing a, a huge role, and we didn't see any. So um, that said, um, some of those metabolic enzymes aren't tagged very well by these SNPs, but um, apparently, you know, others are, and they, they don't show up very um, significantly. Now, uh, CYP2A6 is involved in, um, in nicotine metabolism, and so as the sample sizes get bigger, you do see that showing up. Um, so. Um, but other metabolic enzymes, like GSTs and things like that, they, they really are not showing up. So uh, it, it's suggesting that, um, you know, it's more intrinsic characteristics of recombination repair, cell signaling, things like that, that, um, that, are, that are more key. So. Can you go to the DAS slide? Yeah. i go back a bit. I don't know how to explain my question without. Let's see if I can answer it. So it's the panel A that basically leads to the conclusion that Correct. there's an association. So. I mean, that sort of association, at least as a single gene, is enough as a clinician. Because there's lots of people at every level in both groups. Right. So, to me, the um, real value there is in thinking about etiology that we might not have thought of before. Right. So, as, do P, and, and it's not clear how diazospermine leads to cancer. Right. So, do people... I mean, is the proper follow-up for this to go and look at um, downstream genes of um, diazospermine yeah. and try to figure out which pathway that it is a well, signaler of? Or yeah, in, in this paper, they were actually suggesting that you might go upstream because um, some of the um, the ways in which the, this level are increased um, are transporter genes, and there might be. A tr some transporter that's um, influencing, you know, um, metals or something, you know, so that, yes, yeah, so, right. So that's what they were saying in this paper is that um, they agree with you that this marker itself is very unlikely to be directly related to cancer development. And it's just a marker of some other um, 
you know, factor in the in either upstream, you know, probably upstream of this that that's playing a role. So I'm one of those guys that lived through the period of doing um, biochemical markers on very small samples and getting results that were, you know, hard to reproduce. And but I also lived through the time when you couldn't publish a marker without doing a second cohort yeah. and seeing that it was there. So. Sort of my question is, is it an untapped industry where people are taking all of the sort of markers like this and markers like those that were out there and suggestive and of unknown relevance or impact mm -hmm. and sort of thinking about algorithms and models to put them together to try to identify new pathways or new yeah, I think there's, there, there's probably a fair uh, capacity to do that. To, try and go through um, the literature and pull out the most relevant ones and then validate those. Yes, I think that would be um, a useful exercise. Um, that said, there's a lot of studies that would be hard to replicate. So, you know, it, you'd have, you, you, and, and actually to some extent that's what, so I'm um, sort of representing the IR group here and that is what they're trying to do is pull together all these different data sources. Um, but doing it in a systematic way would be very useful, I, I agree with that. So there's been quite a lot in lung, but I, you know, I, probably cancers that are better supported, like breast, would have far more in, in the way of biomarkers than have been. I think, you know, biomarkers seem almost hopeless to me, but the genetic markers ought to be highly reproducible. Right. And so every time there are large annotated databases that right. just happen to have your phenotype of interest right. in it, I mean, it's almost incumbent on people to look across databases. Right. So that, so that it, that's actually easier. The genetics, they're easier to because they're more reliable and they're accessible. Um, there's, yes. And it's an in silico experiment. It's right. not a wet lab experiment. Right. So. Okay. Thank you, Chris. Thanks. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.